Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight, as we head into the holiday season, we hear from a sustainability guru about how we can cut down on buying a whole lot of stuff for ourselves and for others. We look into why shoplifting and retail theft, already a multi-billion dollar problem for Canadian retailers, continues to get worse. And what's the impact on the rest of us? What can be done to stop it? On World AIDS Day, we learn about a oral history project by researchers at the University of Victoria, documenting the stories of many British Columbians who lived through the early days of the HIV-AIDS pandemic and why it's so important that their voices be heard now. But first, the Prime Minister was in London, Ontario today, announcing that Ottawa's new dental care benefit for kids is now open for applications. We find out why hurdles, hoops, and Canadian revenue We find out why Hurdles, Hoops, and Canada Revenue Agency involvement may chip away at its appeal. Well, first up tonight, it sounds like such a great idea, doesn't it? The Liberal government announced their new dental care benefit for kids today. It's open for applications. This is, of course, part of that arrangement with the NDP. Uh, So today, the Prime Minister was out announcing what it's going to do, who it's going to benefit. It helps qualifying families with kids' dental costs. Uh, Families earning less than $90,000 a year can claim between $260 and $650 per child. Under the age of 12, uh, the Prime Minister was at the School of Dentistry at Western University today talking about the plan. There are half a million kids in this country who don't have access uh, to dental care. And that means parents either don't send their kids to the dentist or have to make impossible choices about what not to buy for their kids if they're going to send them to the dentist. The Prime Minister there. So, of course, this sounds like a great idea, right? But the devil is always, always in the details. Just how easy is this to qualify for? Who qualifies? How do you apply? If you think this is a good idea for you and your family, what do you need to know? It turns out it's pretty complicated. Part of the problem is that it's being administered by the Canada Revenue Agency, whose job really isn't to administer social programs. It's to get your tax money. So to try to navigate through some of the complexities of all of this, joining me now is Lindsay Ted. She's an associate professor of economics at the University of Calgary. She's looked into this issue very closely and knows a whole lot about it. Joins us now. Thanks for your time. Well, thank you for having me. I mean, I think we we know uh, objectively the need is there for yes. something like this. So just just how how acute is the need these days? I mean, certainly the government paints quite a picture of just what the overall impacts of, of not having proper access to dental care is like for many families in this country. Yeah, so we know that about 65% of Canadians report some coverage. That leaves you with a fair portion of the population not covered, about 35%. Now, of course, the 65% that are covered are going to be imperfectly covered And uh, one of the issues with this plan is if you are covered by a private plan, no matter how poor it is, you are not able to access this benefit. But if you are accessing dental care through public plans, which many provinces do, including BC for income assistance recipients, then you can apply to this plan after you have exhausted the benefits covered under the provincial plan. (laughs) <laughs> so it's complicated. So in other words, if you're sitting at home and you have, and you know, you you feel like you might be able to benefit from this plan, you make less than $90,000 a year as a household. Uh, a lot of the onus on figuring out whether you qualify lands on you, doesn't it? Correct. 
And if you're wrong, so this is being delivered by the Canada Revenue Agency. They are delivering it on a trust then verify approach, just like they did with the CERB. And just like what's going on with the CERB right now with CRA trying to cover three and a half billion dollars worth of overpayments, the same thing is going to happen here because even the three of us who wrote this, myself and Tammy Sherl and Jen Robson, we all have kids. We all navigate things. We're academics. We know the tax system better than anything. There were sections in this act that it took us days to figure out what it meant. Days. Days. <laughs> Days and, and and you're well versed in even in the language and the jargon, right? Yes, we 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 are very well versed. We knew what the plan was, and we even had people we could contact in Ottawa uh, to ask our questions to. And that there's some real some real conundrums here because again, the plan is designed and implemented without coordination. So this right. is the feds all on their own and no coordination. Why was that? Because clearly, I mean, healthcare is a provincial jurisdiction. We know that uh, the feds and, and the provinces fight over this all the time. Uh, but when it came to this one, wouldn't it have made sense for it to take a bit longer to roll out, but to make sure that they ironed out all of this first so that there wouldn't be any? Because as you mentioned, the confusion might go from, it might change from province to province, right? Absolutely. This benefit that was announced is a temporary benefit. It's for the 2022-23 year, as well as 2023-2024. So they're continuing to work on the plan. The issue was that the NDP wanted something sooner rather than later, and this was part of the confidence agreement. So here we are. So here we are. (laughs) Uh, In all its lack of perfection, does it accomplish some good stuff? Without a shadow of a doubt, I, I don't want people to to think that we're saying like you don't you shouldn't move forward with this at all. The problem is is that Ottawa is continuing to rely on the Canada Revenue Agency to deliver benefits that are not tax benefits, right? This is a dental benefit, and CRA is now going to be the one who's assessing whether or not your receipts are valid for dental coverage. Are you getting the right kind of treatment? Is it preventative and not cosmetic? And believe it or not, in the dental community, that can be a fine line with all of these things. So I think where the real stumbling block is, is that Ottawa has no way to deliver benefits outside of CRA. And CRA is uh, a tax authority, not a benefit authority. And and it judges how you file, as you pointed it, pointed out earlier. That again puts the onus on the the client, so to speak. I don't know if that's the right term, but puts onus on families to make sure they're getting it right. And you also pointed out in your article, if they get it wrong, it can be fairly onerous. It it can be currently believe onerous. If you've ever been on the receiving end of a review letter from from CRA, you know exactly what's in store. It's a very lengthy letter that is not written in any language that most of us are familiar with. They give you a very short amount of time to turn it around. And they also have specific requirements, which may be Whatever dental coverage that or dental care that you got, maybe it doesn't comply with. I mean, I can liken this back to when we had the child fitness tax credit. Um, The receipts had to look a very specific way and contain very specific information. We just don't know what the CRA is going to look for when it comes knocking on your door looking for the documents, which can be up to six years after you've submitted for the benefit. 
And nor presumably do dentists know exactly what they should be filling in to make sure that clients qualify for these sorts of benefits. Yeah. And you can imagine that if any individual needs a different kind of receipt, the dentist is going to charge the individual for it. And that's not a reimbursable cost. So I guess what it boils down to is it's a good idea rolled out in such a way that it has lots of potential pitfalls. And and even as you pointed out, you were having trouble figuring out the language yourselves. And that's that in itself says a lot. Absolutely. You know, this idea of a dental plan has been floating around Ottawa for at least 10 years, if not more. The fact that they still had to rely on a temporary, this two-year temporary coverage means that they just haven't really done the work that they needed to do before they start making these commitments in policy uh, and in platforms and during elections. And we we really should be a lot more careful, I think, as political parties, when we commit to something, make sure you know how to implement it. Don't leave that for after the fact, because it matters for design. So if I'm a family and I think, okay, this sounds like a good idea to me. I haven't, I've had to put off dental care for my kids. Um, this sounds like something I could take advantage of. Maybe I'll log in. You're supposed to log in and call it up on their website, right? What should you be looking out for then? So in order to apply, you need a CRA My Account, which, I, I mean, a number of us do, but a fair portion of the population still doesn't. Right. So you're going to have to get your CRA My Account going no matter what. Right, then. which takes some time because you need a password and all that. Yes, I, yes. We Absolutely, could, yes. yeah. It okay. can take so. several months because it got to come in the mail. <laughs> right, right. So, uh, so, so you need to have done that. You also already have to be eligible for the and receiving the Canada Child Benefit. And so you're only receiving the Canada Child Benefit if you filed your taxes in 2021. So if you haven't filed your taxes in 2021, you better get on that because you are not eligible for this benefit until you do. If you are receiving the Canada Child Benefit and you and the other parent of the child are no longer together and you split 50-50, then you only can apply for 50% of the benefit and the other parent the 50% of the benefit. So the the Canada, however the Canada Child Benefit is distributed by CRA right now, that tells you everything you need to know about how this benefit will be delivered because that's what they're using as the the guide. But for sure, you got to be filing your taxes and you need to be incurring dental expenses. So between October 2022 and June 2023, you have to have incurred a minimum of $650 in dental costs. So you can pre-apply before you incur those, but you got to make sure you incur those costs and keep your receipts and keep those receipts for up to six years. Yeah. I I mean, I think the problem here, as you pointed out in the article, is that parents may just sit back and think, okay, I'm not going to, like, the risks here are pretty high. So I'm just going to sit back and wait and see what happens. And then then the whole thing becomes a bit of a glorious announcement without much pickup. And as the language currently is written, if you don't apply in this application period and you don't get that initial uh, $650 for the October to June period, it's not like you can apply retroactively. It's right. gone. And so then you have to wait until the 2023-2024 application period to apply. But if you don't apply in this period, the money is gone. So you have six months to apply and that's it. Then you're done you, for the year. Yeah, you're done. And as soon as the next benefit period opens, which is on July 1st, that's for the next $650. 
Because as you know, when they make these announcements, you always think, oh, you know, I can just head to the dentist tomorrow morning. I'll book an appointment now. I'll be there in two weeks. And, you know, my kids can get the kind of dental care that I've been unable to pay for the past little while. But that's not at all the case. Well, I mean, you you can book an appointment and you can go get it, but you also need to be making sure you're following all of these steps to make sure that you qualify. There's going to be parents who have a lot of work to do to make sure that they meet those eligibility requirements. But even then, it is possible that the CRA will come back and, and review and audit your expenses and that they are not satisfied that you met the eligibility criteria, you will be required to pay that benefit back. Now, this is a temporary measure. We're expecting a more fulsome piece of policy in the not too distant future. What is your hopes? Do you have higher hopes for that one? (laughs) Of course, I have higher hopes. (laughs) You have to, you have to in public policy. This absolutely is a program that needs to be better streamlined between private providers, employers, as well as public plans. We are running the risk right now with this temporary program of private plans actually scaling back dental coverage for their clients through the private plans because this exists. And if we don't properly make sure that they don't free up that space, we, we do run the risk of people having poorer coverage at the end of this rather than better coverage for everyone. I guess the the, the importance here is that uh, Ottawa continue to monitor pickup of the program, what's being spent, how it's being spent as it works on this longer term plan. Are there examples out there of, of systems that would work in this case? Yeah, I mean, they've ha- they've actually have a, a number of proposals that have been already submitted. We've we've had task force, working groups, expert panels, all of this kind of stuff. They're sitting on a lot of different plans. The key is negotiation, and it's negotiation between a lot of disparate parties, and not just the provinces and the territories. Now we're also talking about these private plans and trying to figure out is this going to be just a gap filler plan? Or are we actually going to move towards publicly provided dental care like we do in healthcare? That is what is really unclear, is what kind of model are they moving towards and what is the best way to get there? Lindsay Teds, thank you so much for clearing this all up for us tonight. Well, thank you very much for having me. Stuff is what we've been talking about tonight, the accumulation of stuff. Um, we're heading into the holiday season. That's the time of year where you get a lot of stuff. You know, it's uh, Secret Santas and so on. I, I suppose that's changed a little bit, gifts exchange and so on. But, you know, you do end up buying a lot of stuff. Some, some, listen, every once in a while you get a great small gift. I'm not, I don't want to rain on anyone's Christmas parade here or holiday parade. Uh, some small gifts are, gifts are fantastic. But there is a lot of pressure to try and find stuff. And a lot of that stuff ends up just being put beside other stuff. George Carlin, of course, the late great... Put it best. Let's have a listen. That's all your house is. It's a place to keep your stuff while you go out and get more stuff. (laughs) Now, sometimes, sometimes you've got to move. You've got to get a bigger house. Why? Too much stuff. (laughs) You've got to move all your stuff. And maybe put some of your stuff in storage. Imagine that. There's a whole industry based on keeping an eye on your stuff. Believe it or not, uh, a survey uh, in the States found that Americans spend an average of $18,000 per year on non-essential items. They were called $18,000 a year on non-essential items. Um, That's a lot of money. Now, I suspect a lot of us this year 
are probably looking, given inflation and the cost of living and so on, are probably looking for ways to spend a little bit less without necessarily doing without. Like you still want to give people gifts and acknowledge people that you love and so forth in that way. But you don't necessarily have to get them stuff, right? Um, it's good for our bank accounts. It's good for our souls at times. We can do this for ourselves as well, obviously. Good for the planet to top it all off. So how do you consume more wisely? Well, some people even make this a bit of an art. Our next guest went a full year without buying anything new, so to speak. Um, Ashley Piper is who we'd ask. She is a sustainability expert. She's author of a book called Give an S, Do Better, Live Better, Save the Planet. And she joins us tonight from Chicago. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Ben, for having me. So we've just been bombarded by days of advertising, continues actually, I I should say, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, and so on. Uh, But really looking ahead to Christmas 2022 or holidays 2022, I should say, I think there is a real sense out there that uh, coming out of the you know, the the worst days of the pandemic, that we should really be looking to conserve and sustain. How do you resist buying stuff at this time of year? Because you seem to be something of an expert at it, obviously. (laughs) The least fun expert at the party, right? Right. (laughs) The person who shows you how to wrangle kind of overconsumption impulses. Well, first of all, it's really tough. I think a lot of people think, oh, it's just, you know, a lack of willpower, But really what used to be marketing standard was that we might get five, maybe nine impressions from a retailer, you know, and that used to be the good old paper flyers, maybe a television or radio ad. But now with social media and everything being so incredibly high touch and push notifications, most retailers are investing money to reach us about 50 times because they know it's going to take that for us to make a purchase. So it really is uh, quite a prevalent and insidious marketing in a way. So it's I just want to first issue that caveat. It's not that you know, you're buying things because you lack willpower. It really is a system designed to set us up to ostensibly fail and buy things as much as possible, especially during the holiday season. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. So the, some of the ways that people can kind of resist scratching that itch, as difficult as it may be, I oftentimes have been buying gifts secondhand or I gift things that are not things. So I tend to gift experiences or even for people like my friends, you know, who are parents, maybe acts of service like, hey, I'll babysit your kids for an evening so you guys can go out or I'll do pet sitting, something like that. And I find that those are often more meaningful for people than just getting another thing that's going to collect dust that might break that they don't actually need. So I do focus on more experiential things as well as gifting secondhand things. You can find a lot of brand new with tags on them items through a lot of these uh, brick and mortar consignment retailers, the online retailers that are doing secondhand and circular economy, like the Poshmarks, the Mercari's, the Facebook marketplaces. And so I'm always finding really interesting and thoughtful gifts for folks that they'll actually use that are basically brand new, but they're they're coming secondhand. Yeah, I, I guess one of the keys to cutting down is 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 having a goal too, like you need to be able to, to justify why you're doing it, right? Uh, uh, I think a lot of people start start off with good good ideas because the one thing about the way you've described what that is, is it does take a bit of time and thought. Like you have to be, you have to have a bit, have a bit of a plan when you go in as opposed to just sort of flipping through the Best Buy catalog looking for something your dad might like. You know, it's, it's pretty, yeah. it's, it's, there's a bit of laziness to it too, no offense. 
There is. I mean, you know, and that's okay because we're we're so bombarded with uh, with choices all the time, and we know scientifically our brains can only handle so many decisions a day. So retailers know that, marketers know that, and they they really want to capitalize on that. So they want to capitalize on you or me hanging out on the couch, going, "Gosh, I don't know what to get Dad for Christmas." You know, and then we start thumbing through a catalog or we see a social media ad and we go, oh, that's what I should do. There is element of planning that actually can help you to sort of be a little bit more organized, a bit more intentional with how you're heading into the holidays or how you're making any kind of purchase of an item. I have an initiative that I I shepherd people through for free called No New Things. And I've done that for over a year before. But a lot of the folks who participate do it for just a week or for a month. And it's really to take a temperature on their spending habits and impulses to understand like what is their emotional state? What are they doing when they're really compelled to buy something? And a lot of times it's very much the same as when we're compelled to like go eat snacks at midnight, you know, if you're me. Yeah. <laughs> or uh, it's it's that people are in kind of an interesting emotional place where they're bored or they're procrastinating on something. They're seeking something other than actually consuming or buying an item. But that buying an item or browsing for an item is kind of a way to procrastinate or act on those emotions. So many of our purchases are not utilitarian. In fact, especially if you're female, It's been shown that about 95% of our purchasing is driven by emotions as opposed to by need. So, you know, oh, I I had a wonderful day, so I want to treat myself or, oh, I'm feeling like crap, so I'm going to go and buy something to kind of cheer myself up. Or I saw an emotional commercial and it made me feel a kind of way about a product. So I wanted to buy it. So actually having something like I call a need note where you're looking at what do I need? What will I need to be acquiring or buying in the next few weeks. Maybe it's a birthday gift for someone. Maybe it's an item for your home or supplies for your kids. Planning that out a little bit and then also determining, could I get this secondhand? Could I borrow this from a friend? Could I rent this item? Um, Is a really good way to do that planning and also to give your imagination a little bit of a workout as to other ways you can acquire those items that you need beyond just going you know, on the big box retailers and buying it brand new. I've been interested just by how much the because it's something we learn as children, right? That how much that whole idea of language comes into this, and it's the want over need idea. I mean, need notes is great because you do need these things, but also this whole idea of want over need that we return back to this idea: do I want it or do I need it? And therein lies your difference, right? And then if you need it, you find out, as you've pointed out, a better way of doing that. Absolutely. And a great way also to determine want versus need, or even like, does this item have utility in my life? So maybe it's a want as opposed to a need, but would you find a place for it? Would you actually use it? Is go ahead and put it in your virtual cart and then sleep on it, wait on it for a day or two. And then if you've completely forgotten about the item, chances are you're probably not going to have much use for it in your life. But if it's still on your mind, you're still thinking of ways you're going to use it, you're kind of obsessing over it, that might be an indication it could have good utility in your life and it might be a good thing for you to buy. But even just taking a pause is a really kind of important quote unquote hack because retailers really want to get us when we're in that instant gratification space. And if you can just delay that a little bit, you'll get a lot of insights into whether or not an item actually has usefulness in your life. 
Yeah, you get a lot of relentless reminders too. If you leave something in that basket, I found they, you uh, do they, a lot they, of coupon uh, codes too. Did yeah. you forget something, Ben? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, did you forget something? It's twenty percent cheaper than when you were looking at it, and they keep they keep coming at you that way. I mean, you're right. One of the things I found so interesting about about modern life, I sound like an old person now, but that's is all right. That, we can is, be old together. Yeah, is exactly. <laughs> is that how how commercials for things intertwine themselves with with you know if it's on social media with sort of day to day updates? So oh, there's you know those pictures of my cousin's kids, and oh, buy those sunglasses so it's it's funny how it it plays with the brain in a different way oh absolutely you know i teach marketing and sustainability at universities here in the united states and it is so fascinating how the landscape for marketing and and also how much psychology and sociology marketers leverage to reach us in those sentimental spaces, in those kind of ways that we never were really reached before with traditional marketing. And it and that's why, you know, I kind of prefaced all this with being like, it's not a lack of willpower. They're coming at you from all angles. So another thing you can do is I recommend that people silence or, you know, unsubscribe or mute as many notifications as possible. Um, so there's always the, you know, kind of usual suspect of, unsubscribing from emails that tempt you to shop, but also unsubscribing, for instance, from text messages. So many of us receive text messages from retailers, and we don't even realize that we've opted into that. Or unfollowing or muting influencers or social media accounts that tend to glorify hauls or shopping and things that you know create that impulse for us to shop, because that's just going to make it that much easier for you to not be as tempted to do those impulse purchases. You know, I've often read articles about um, about people who don't buy anything for a year, and I've always been curious about how was it? What did you most enjoy about it, and what was the hardest part about going a year without uh, new things? Yeah, so my challenge is I just didn't buy new things, so I still right. allow myself to have new experiences. I bought groceries, right. you know, of I course, repaired yeah. things in my home, so it wasn't quite as aesthetic as it sounds, but. I found one, the most challenging thing for me was really getting in front of kind of that planning and then retraining my brain and having that attitudinal shift of when I needed something, I didn't need to go out and automatically buy it brand new or go on Amazon. Instead, I was like, maybe my neighbor has this. Maybe my friend does. Maybe I have something kicking around my house I could repurpose. So that was both a challenge. And I think in the end, it just became habit for me. I did it for so long. The benefits, the overt benefits of this, even if you do it for like just a week, are one, you save a ton of money. I mean, when I did this for a year, I saved about $16,000. And that wasn't from making any extra income or anything. That was just avoiding impulse purchases. And also time. You know, we, at least in the United States, the Department of Labor does this thing called the American Time Study. And they look at how average Americans kind of broken down by gender identification and age spend their, you know, 24 hours a day. And what's fascinating is that the average American spends anywhere from two to five hours a day doing shopping related tasks. So that's everything from browsing to actively shopping to putting things in their carts and also to tending to their things. So that could be trying to offload their things if they don't want them anymore, putting their items in storage, cleaning those items, rearranging them, repairing them. So, so much of our time every day is devoted to things, to stuff. And uh, yeah. when you when you don't have as much of that lens on your life because it's not browsing and shopping, we're not recreational to me anymore, I got back 
so much time. Like, I'm not joking. I got a book deal. I got a promotion at work. My friendships and relationships were better. I got healthier because I suddenly went from a person who was like, I'm just so busy. I don't have enough time to having a lot more time to devote to the things that were clearly priorities to me. And anything that was hard to give up? The hardest thing for me to give up was buying like new kind of impulsy makeup. I really set myself to moving through what I already had because how often do you finish a lipstick or something? I mean, I'm a I'm a beauty fiend and I've never finished a lipstick in my entire <laughs> in my entire life. So, I think like that was for me one of the most difficult things, you know, but but it ended up being really great because I found ultimately I just didn't need those things. I had everything I needed already to feel polished and put together and a lot more money and time as well, which which is great. And my home was less cluttered with things. You know, I think during the pandemic, a lot of us were sheltering in place for a good amount of time working from home. And so there was this huge kind of initiative where people were like, I need to declutter my home. These four walls, there's too much stuff in here. And, uh, you know, I don't really have that issue as much because I just, I don't buy, I really, if I do bring something into my home or my life, it's with a great amount of intention and forethought. So I, I know I'm going to have it for a long time. Always reminds me of George Carlin's monologue on stuff. Uh, Ashley Piper, thank you so much for your time on your, and your advice tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Great time talking to you. Holiday season. The holiday shopping rush for Canadian retailers, it's both a bonus. There is a hidden problem with it as well. Shoplifting goes up. It's already a huge problem. It costs retailers here about $5 billion a year. That's the estimate. And retail theft, it's called. It's not just people taking stuff off the shelves and running out the door. It's obviously much broader than that. But $5 billion enough, it cuts into companies' profits. It affects consumers. Um I was reading the other day that Target, that huge American company that briefly laid down roots here and left quickly, they believe organized retail theft could become a $600 million problem by the end of the year. That's organized retail theft alone, a $600 million problem for Target alone. That money seems huge. Uh, There are a number of causes for this, you know. organized groups and so forth. But we wanted to find out a little bit more about what's happening on this side of the border. So who better to do that than Rui Rodriguez? He's a long time, was a long time retail executive. He's now an executive advisor to the Retail Council of Canada on loss prevention and risk management. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Ben. Pleasure to be here. We know it's a long-standing problem, uh, but I guess as far as Canada's concerned, we're not quite sure just how much it's costing retailers. We know it's costing them quite a bit, though. Yeah, shoplifting, I mean, we know for 2022, uh, and not just estimated, but based on data, shoplifting is about a $5 billion problem in Canada. Uh, That's across all sectors. That's the cause of crime in Canada, uh, as we know it now. And, you know, if you think about 10 years ago, it was about $3 billion. So it's a growing problem and will continue to be uh, an issue. But we are seeing an increase in shoplifting and theft, not a decrease right now. And we're seeing it evolve as well, aren't we? We're seeing different strategies being employed. And the biggest challenge, Ben, over the last uh, three years with uh, the pandemic, a lot of retailers being closed and then the reopening, 
Uh, we've seen this surgence of violence uh, and aggression that I think grew more so through pandemic and it's continued to escalate. So I would say for Canada, the biggest change is not just shoplifting increases, but it's the violence and aggression that has come while those incidents are being perpetrated. And we're seeing across the country, there's certainly pockets of the country where it may, may be more prolific, but it's across every province. And violence, I mean, it could be just simple assault, aggression based on uh, vocal, but we're seeing weapons, bear sprayed knives, guns in some incidents, daylight robberies, which we really haven't seen in retail for many, many years. So I'd say that's the biggest issue that we're dealing with Canada is this increase of aggression, violence that our frontline workers and managers are facing. So this isn't walking in and trying to sneak something under your coat and walking out. This is sort of brazen, in-your-face, theft in, in retail environments. Yeah, and, it, you know, there's a lot of factors. Certainly, you know, inflation is not helping this cause. There's a, a larger number of mental health issues that we're dealing with, drug issues. So obviously, all of those add it to it. But including the, the boom that we've seen in reselling, the online growth, and right. the demand for product has also increased uh, an, another element of organized retail crime that is increasing. Whereas before, that might have been traditional brick and mortars, not just the, the, the folks looking for a small item, maybe it's for personal need, uh, or that it's now professionals preying upon retailers, not just by coming into brick and mortars, but through online trends, through curbside, through porch piracy. So the levels of crime and the ways to commit crime against retailers has increased. It's no longer just at the store level. I think in the past, we used to used to picture it as something that, you know, occasionally there were sort of gangs of teenagers who would do it in, in swarms. There were obviously people who did it uh, a lot, you know, people who compulsive shoplifters and so on. But are we seeing, uh, I was reading something earlier this, uh, this month that was released by, um, or last month rather, that was released on Target. And they were certainly pointing the finger at, I mean, organized crime has many different uh, connotations, but they were indicating that this was a much more organized form of theft than it used to be. And I would have to concur with that. Obviously, in the U.S., the, based on just supply and demand and population, when they see issues, they can be uh, bigger in scale. Uh, but I would uh, you know, agree with the philosophy. What we're seeing from an organized retail crime and the different facets, and the evolution of the organized criminals who are also preying upon those that may have the mental health issues or the drug addictions, uh, where they're preying upon these folks to say, you know, you steal this for me, bring it to me, I will pay you, you know, 10, 20 cents on the dollar. So that creates a, a new emergence of organized crime. And as long as there's demand for black market goods, and as I said, with the evolution of online and social media, it allow, also allows criminals to sell through social media, uh, marketplace and others so they can hide behind it. And people are willing to pay for that merchandise, right? I think a lot of people know when you're buying merchandise like that, it might not be coming from uh, the proper means. It may be stolen. But bottom line, as long as there's demand and there's these new ways that I can interact, you know, from a criminal, you can interact with people, the opportunity is there. So yes, the ORC, you know, organized retail crime has also grown proportionally in Canada, and we're seeing a lot more of it. And from an organization, we're also seeing more violence within that ORC activity. You know, there's a difference between a professional organized group that comes in with, you know, booster bags and they don't really want to get caught because this is their career. But now we also have over the last couple of years, this prolific violent criminal that may be tied to a gang, but they're going to get what they want through violence. And that is a significant issue and obviously a biggest concern for, for our employees. 
Yeah, I imagine for a lot of employees, and I know this to be true, that they're simply told, let 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 people steal, right? You can't, uh, it's too dangerous to try to stop them. Yeah, and I, I would say a lot of retailers for a long time, you know, it's the, for the safety of their employees. But we've also seen this emergence now in, you know, wanting to protect your own employees and your merchandise and your locations. So there's a an emergence of the use of guards, tactical guards at retailers. You know, there's always been a bit of that through the holiday, but there's more and through the year. Paid duty officers to deal with the, the concern that there are these escalated situations. And I would say partially also, we have retailers that are now starting to take a stand to say, well, if I allow them to just come in and steal and go, they're going to continue to victimize our locations. And even if we stand back and let them do it and they don't hurt our employees, we're still a victim. So at some point, you have to deploy some type of strategy to prevent it. A lot of retailers have invested in you know reducing the inventory on the floor, other measures, points of exit, points of entry, controlling traffic. But that's a big burden on retailers and a big cost as well. So also, you know, with Retail Council of Canada, we've also been working closely with police, the justice system and government to look at solutions long term uh, and engaging with every province around. Let's get to the table with stakeholders. This is a social issue and it's not necessarily just a police issue, but retailers want to work together with the other stakeholders to come up with some solutions that help everybody. Rui Rodriguez is with us this half hour. He is with the Retail Council of Canada. He's an executive advisor on loss prevention and risk management. We're talking about shoplifting. Uh, the holiday season tends to see a rise in a retail crime. It has been a big problem uh, of late, $5 billion a year. It's estimated it costs uh, the Canadian Canadian retailers alone. It's a bigger problem in the U.S. these days as well. Um, tell me, you know, I, was, I was noticing I was at a Target in Seattle, of all places, and clearly, you know, downtown Seattle's had its issues with shoplifting. And, and so much of their merchandise is now behind lock and key, like it's literally behind guards. Are we heading that way to where uh, retailers will have no choice but to kind of really safeguard what's on the floor? Because if not, it just becomes too tempting to steal? Yeah, Ben, and I think a lot of retailers have already deployed some of those measures here this year uh, as they're trying to the balance between great customer service and making it easy, as well as obviously protecting their own goods and making sure there's goods available for the customer. So yeah, there's various strategies. Uh, I think, again, guards are being deployed in a lot of retailers uh, as that deterrent, sometimes using own employees as greeters, controlling traffic in and out uh, where you see in some retailers. So they're trying to control the number of people in at any time so they can potentially get one-to-one service. You probably see that a bit more in the luxury space. Mm-hmm. you know. And then employment of merchandise security measures, as you mentioned, possibly showcases, applying cables to tie things down or just limiting the quantities, adding more cameras in the stores to be able to keep an eye on hotspots. Retailers in Canada have been deploying those measures over the last year and continue to, uh, which obviously comes at a significant cost to the retailer as well. Yeah, I can imagine these days with uh, with inflation biting uh, everything, uh, you know, we could be heading into a bit of a recession. Um, this is a real problem for retailers having to deal with with this problem because it often they the individual retailer has to shoulder it, right? Yeah, and you know what I can tell you just from my own knowledge of Retail Council of Canada because obviously working with the retailers at all levels, I can see where retail organizations or Canada are trying to do the best to shelter as much as pushing the increases to the customer as possible. I think if you look around the world, our inflation is less than a lot of other similar countries. But it's inevitable that at some time, you know, as losses go up and organizations need to 
pay for their employees, the stores, facilitate all that. It's a balance sheet exercise. You know, you have to increase cost of goods in order to make sure you can continue to be viable in that community you're trying to serve. Do you have a sense? I mean, I'm sure all organizations, maybe not small retailers, but larger retailers will obviously factor in uh, theft and loss as part of their uh, business equation. Do you have any sense of just how much beyond that it's gone right now, beyond sort of what would be considered normal loss? Uh, I can only say, Ben, on some of the factors because it'd be a bit of a guess. I, I can tell you based on some that I know where you might have averaged out, say, 1.8% shrink, uh, whereas now they could be uh, easily 1% higher than that. Wow. Uh, and of course, you know, loss is a cost on your P&L, your profit and loss statement, but it starts to impact all the other things you want to do. So if you want to continue to still service the customer, that money's got to come from somewhere. What would be the effective ways to combat it? I mean, clearly it can't be, you know, within the justice system, it's not a uh, particular scene is a particularly, you know, it's not a crime that's particularly harshly punished necessarily. Uh, but what could be done, do you think, within within all realms of, of, of fighting this? What do you think would be a good place to start? Yeah, so, I, you know, I would state that probably, you know, there's three type of criminals um, and I, I don't want to generalize, but they kind of fall into the the opportunistic, the chronic and the professional the opportunistic, those are people who are always going to steal when they get a chance. Uh, the chronic and the professional are the ones that we can possibly have a greater impact. One, it's addressing supply and demand, the black market. That's a very difficult thing to do. But collaborating to address some of our socioeconomic issues, so the prolific offenders, why they're out there stealing, the organized groups, and working collectively with police to work on projects that targets these organized groups. And we send the message that you know, we can work with police, conduct the investigations, make an impact. Uh, and then from a program perspective is working with justice and government around the resolutions for, you know, the 20 percent of the individuals that go through the system may be pled out because it is perceived as property crime. But meanwhile, that person may have repeated 30 times. There's got to be a better resolution. And there are some getting this person through a program that gets them the aid to get them out of a life of crime. Let's catch some of the younger folks on their first, second, third offense so they don't become career criminals. And I can say a lot of retailers have said they're very happy to work with the government and justice towards these solutions. You're not going to fix it all. But if we can impact 20 percent, retailers want to work together with the other stakeholders to come up with some solutions that help everybody. Rui Rodriguez, thank you so much. My pleasure, Ben. Thank you. Well, December 1st is World AIDS Day, a day to both reflect on those lost, the many millions, 40 million is the estimate around the world since the early 80s, uh, as well as the progress made and the challenges still to be overcome. Uh, it's been since 1988 that this day has been dedicated to raising awareness around the world of the AIDS pandemic. And caused by the spread of the HIV infection. And again, there are many things to celebrate these days, uh, but some quick figures for you. The 38 million people worldwide living with HIV now, nearly six who know they have HIV are not receiving treatment. That is an issue. Don't forget, there has been a global pledge to eliminate HIV as a threat uh, by the end of the cent of the end of the decade, rather. And it doesn't feel like we're getting, or at least necessarily getting there quickly enough. A further 4 million people living with HIV have not yet been diagnosed. 
The good news is 76% of adults overall were receiving antiretroviral treatment that helped them lead normal and healthy lives. Only 52% of kids, though, living with HIV are getting those same treatments globally in 2021. Uh, So we can tell where the need is. 70% of new HIV infections are among people who are marginalized and often criminalized. So we can see where the need remains when it comes to trying to combat HIV AIDS. Um, it has been more than 41 years. I grew up in the, in, in the 80s. So uh, I remember very well those early days of AIDS and the, the fear and the panic and watching friends of my parents who had friends die. Um, it was devastating. Um, but 40 years later, 40 million lives lost. Um, and, you know, a lot of the history of that time is starting to fade away because those who lived through that era, often many of them baby boomers, are starting to pass on, uh, those who survived, obviously. And that is the basis of a new community-based oral history project led by researchers at the University of Victoria called HIV In My Day. They set out to collect stories from nearly 120 long-term HIV survivors and caregivers in the province of BC. They did that over a three-year period. Here are some of the voices in a short video about the project. If one of our friends was there and they happened to be out and all of a sudden started not to feel well, then it would be up to us our friends to take that individual and make sure that they got home. We had to treat them as if they weren't 80 pounds, as if they could, you know, if they didn't need help cutting their food. That is some of the voices from HIV in my day. Uh, the lead on that project is Nathan Lachowski. He's an associate professor of, P- of public health and social policy at the University of Victoria. And he joins me now. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Ben. Tell me about the inspiration for this project. I was reading that, you know, I think if we look at sort of the history of that time, so much of it, and you've pointed this out, it was centered in, in sort of the cities like Toronto and New York and San Francisco, but other areas we didn't know as much about how people lived through that, those early, those early days of the HIV AIDS pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the inspiration for the project really came from this aspect of being at this unique point in history where we are seeing those who did survive um, passing away, as you said in the introduction. And we know that the history is different out West um, than some of the other major urban centers. And so we wanted to be able to tell that story in the words of those who lived it. And we know that in the history that's been told and the documentaries that have been made, that certain kinds of people have been centered more than others. And so we wanted to make sure that we thought about whose voices really need to be lifted up um, before it's too late and before we lose these stories. Tell me about that, because again, I guess as whenever we look back at history, we notice the gaps, right? The hindsight is, is always mm-hmm. prevalent. What, what voices did you feel needed to be heard and how did you go to find them? Yeah, well, I mean, we know that two gay men were one of the groups predominantly affected here in North America and particularly in those urban centers. Um, but there were a lot of other groups that were affected during hemophiliacs, women, um, people living um, during uh, on the streets or who were on house. And during all of those groups, had a different experience of the onset of of AIDS and the onset of HIV. And so for us, we wanted to make sure that we took an approach that really centered people who lived that era. And we wanted to center those who were long-term survivors. But we also know that because of the devastating losses, there were many people who can't tell their story um, directly anymore. And so we wanted to include caregivers, people who took care of and 
made sure that um, between those people who were living with HIV and passing away from HIV were cared for. Um, and so those caregivers were an important part of the story. And we use this oral history approach because it is a feminist methodology that really is about balancing the record of history um, and really centering the voice of those who are marginalized from the historical record. Yeah, looking through some of the interviews you did, it, it really, really found some fascinating tales. And I gathered just from watching some of the people share them that they had been waiting a very long time to tell this story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the stories are powerful. I mean, these are rich, um, intense periods of time um, for society, let alone for the individuals that were living them. And to be able to speak with over 100 folks um, from all different walks of life in different parts of, uh, of the province, I think was really rich. And it created this record that is, I think, a lot more complete and starts to really um, pick at some of those threads of things that were less talked about um, as part of the HIV response. And so when we know lots about the direct action activism and the importance of those um, who are out on the streets during picketing government um, and asking for um, some kind of action, um, and so you know, those stories have been told a little bit more, and we got interesting perspectives on some of the pers- some of the direct experiences at West. So, for example, during the government at one point was trying to force quarantine people who living, were living with HIV, and that isn't an experience that necessarily happened in other jurisdictions. And so, unlike our response to COVID, do you know what I mean? So it was yeah. not just about government inaction; it was about opposition to the pandemic. Interesting. I mean, I grew up in Montreal. I didn't know that. I didn't know that that had been on the table in BC. Yeah, and I think this is one of those pieces where history is so localized. It's about the people and about the places and about the politics that were at play. Um, And we know that when we think about during how COVID has played out differently in different parts of the country, and we can see how different provinces reacted in different ways. And during there was different burdens of the infection and during different impacts on the economy and social life, etc., and so in many ways, HIV has had a local story. Yes, you know, I mean, there's this global impact and we're all connected globally to the, uh, to the massive loss, loss of life that has happened. Um, but we also have stories of resilience and resistance here. Um, and I think those are really powerful. When we start thinking about during what do we take forward out of all of this loss and what are some of the lessons learned? Um, and solidarity was a, a key piece during working across difference to address um, during uh, any kind of inequity or any kind of injustice, and was particularly important in HIV because there was a shared goal uh, of trying to fight this virus. And when we think about current issues, um, during like uh, anti-black racism or like reconciliation, during the solidarity we need to show across that work, it shouldn't just be from the people who are directly living it, um, but others that are affected as well. Yeah, I noticed that from from the conversations that were that you had that there were a lot of people who talked about that allyship that existed long before that word uh, was ever used. To be honest, and and it was it was really fascinating because I don't think sitting on the outside, I don't think it's something that was ever I ever fully comprehended. No, and I think there's some really beautiful stories um, during that. I think paint a whole picture of how how we got through that period of time. Um, during one of those was the ways in which people showed up to take care of each other. And these aren't, during, they're not people who are on the streets necessarily and were holding placards. And these are people who were at the bedside or in people's homes, during bringing food, during spending time, um, during helping them live and maintain their humanity and their dignity. And that work was incredibly important to keeping activists well, to keeping people living with HIV well. Um, and so I think during their subtle ways in which people showed up for each other, and I mean, there's certainly stories in this um, project during that came forward in terms of how lesbian women, during how indigenous people and two-spirit people showed up um, during for their community 
uh, and really helped each other through the challenges that people were facing. Um, and I think these are important stories for people to reflect on who lived through it, um, but also for new generations that are coming up that don't have a direct experience having lived through HIV. I think it's such a poignant memory for people who were alive at the time, um, but for these new generations of folks who are from communities affected by HIV or for young people who are living with HIV now, this is one of the ways that we're trying to make sure they get a comprehensive and accurate telling of their own histories related to HIV. And there's a wall and it's got a whole bunch of names of people that have died and so many of those people, names like the names I know who they were, these people, right? And, and I have a hard time reading that wall. I could hear them just fall apart. And then I just got up and went to work. Voices from HIV in my day. This is an oral history project uh, by researchers at the University of Victoria trying to capture the voices, the stories, the experiences of those who lived through the early days of the HIV AIDS pandemic in British Columbia, Um, looking at it from a new perspective as well, trying to capture perhaps voices that weren't heard as often back then uh, to try to tell a more complete history of that time uh, for generations to come, for generation now and generations to come. Um, With us is Nathan Lachowski. He's the project lead. He's an associate professor of public health and social policy at the University of Victoria. Uh, You mentioned it earlier, but you feel like this is still very relevant to today, that there's a lot to learn here. Absolutely. I mean, we've been managing with the HIV pandemic for 40 years, and it's one of our first global pandemics in our recent era that has really taught us a lot about what public health is, um, what the impacts of stigma and discrimination are on a medical condition. And you know, all of those stories are sadly still quite relevant for things our world are facing today. Yeah, you mentioned specifically sort of the, the difference in response to, or at least specifically the response to the opioid crisis. Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about the HIV response is that when really it has largely um, been masked in terms of the beginning as government inaction or government opposition or resistance. Um, and when we think about the toxic drug supply, um, I mean, this has been something that the government has been called on to take action and to exert their policy force where they can to try and address this. And so we have examples with COVID where doing things that were not thought possible before COVID seem to then be able to get mobilized and then to happen. So, I mean, part of this is about where political value and will um, really shapes action by a government um, and also how communities who are affected show up um, for each other and for advocacy to try and make action happen. And also, I guess, in some senses, how quickly government moves when something is impacting a population that is not necessarily uh, the mainstream population, or is not seen as being the mainstream population. Absolutely. And this is where the kind of stigma of HIV uh, persists. I mean, we often talk about the groups that are during most predominantly affected, but HIV is something that it can affect anyone. And you know, there are people of all ages, of all races, of all genders, of all sexual orientations that are living with HIV. Uh, many even in our own home communities. And so this invisibility or the preference to focus on certain kinds of groups being impacted is part of the resistance to actually making sure that we have a good public health response to HIV that makes sure that everyone has access to treatments, um, to support, and can live in a stigma-free world that is they're not going to be discriminated on based on their, their HIV status. What did what stood out for you in these interviews? I mean, you did that's 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 a, you know those are a lot of stories that you heard and a, a lot of very personal, very intimate stories. Did what surprised you the most about what you ended up finding out? I think the ways in which people still manage to find humor and humanity 
despite all of the challenge. Um, and this wasn't just a challenge at an individual level or an interpersonal level, and there was incredible loss, but um, people were incredibly resilient. And without the internet and without necessarily the same access to information, people were able to share resources, make connections, and, and manage their lives despite all of that. And I think that was incredibly powerful for me as a younger person kind of learning about that history. Um, and the other is how community organizations really stood up and filled the gaps that governments left. Um, these are organizations that formed by people in the communities and who cared for people in the communities and provided services and supports that the government was not doing. Um, and so I think that those two things really stood out for me as particularly poignant. Yeah, I, th- I think back then too, I think back to those days before social media, before so on. I mean, a lot of this went on um, in the shadows, to be frank. Uh, you know, people didn't know what was going on. It was something that people didn't talk about very much. It was sort of activism without any, there was no like, there was, you know, there, it, was, it was unrecognized for a very long time. And it feels like maybe that's the, the, the lesson that's so different from today. Yeah, and certainly, I mean, our information systems are so different with social media and the internet and student texting. And all of those things didn't exist at the onset of AIDS. And I mean, the same challenges around misinformation and who to trust still persist. But I think there are some differences in what kind of technologies are available to us. And part of um, during those lessons, while there's difference in the environment, some of the underlying lessons are still important. And that's really why in this project, we wanted to take these stories and turn them into something that people could digest, could um, experience and could react to. And, and that was kind of the impetus behind developing this In My Day Verbatim Theatre project that is uh, during one of the, the recent outputs from the, from the research project. Yeah, uh, tell me about that because this is going to hit the stage now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's World AIDS Day today and the play premieres tomorrow. Um, it's being featured at the Colch in Vancouver um, and it's running for about a two-week run. Um, and so anyone who's in the area that's interested in um, taking it up, try and tell your friends and please come and watch it. But it's basically um, uh, a verbatim project, which means it takes the words directly from the storytellers in the research project. And Rick Wayne's the uh, incredible playwright behind this, who's one of the participants and a part of our team, wove those stories together into a narrative and into a theatrical piece. And so it puts the stories on stage, raises them up in the ways that we really want to, um, and gives people um, an artistic kind of interpretation of what exactly went down and, and what was experienced. And, and I think it's going to be a really powerful way in which people can kind of engage in this history um, and meaning making uh, for themselves. Yeah. Have you managed to see any of the, have you managed to get, catch a glimpse of it just to see what it's like to see those words presented in that way? It must be, it must be different and yet very powerful. I will say as an epidemiologist, I've stayed out of the artistic production piece, but I've learned a lot along the way, which I'm grateful for. The beauty of community-based research um, is that these relationships and these kinds of things just evolve quite organically. But I've seen a few little glimpses as the play has been produced and the script has been developed. We've had a committee for anti-racism and equity um, as part of the research project that's given a lens of analysis to the play to make sure that things like representation and diversity um, during all of those really important concepts are held well um, in the play and in the production. And so I'm excited. It'll be the first time I get to see it on Saturday um, in its full glory. So I'm looking forward to it. Great. And what next for the project? Is, is this it? Has it? Does it wrap with these 120 or nearly 120 or do you continue? I mean, my feeling around all of this community-based research is that we follow the will of the community. And as we've talked more and more about this project, other people in the country have reached out to us to say, 
oh, wow, that's really cool. And during, I'm from a part of this country that also hasn't told this story. Um, during, and, or I'm from a particular community that hasn't been forefronted in the, in the telling of the story. So we are planning next year to have a gathering um, in Quebec City at the National HIV Conference to talk about oral history and storytelling within the HIV movement and to see what is of interest to people. And so we'll follow the community guidance and, and do what they ask us to do. Well, Nathan, thank you so much for your time tonight. It's a fascinating project. Much appreciated. I think if people want to go look for it, the UVic website is probably the easiest place to track it down, I believe. Absolutely. If you Google HIV in my day, uh, UVic, that'll be the easiest way to find information about it. Well, uh, congratulations on the play. I guess it'll be exciting on Saturday night. And thanks so much for your time tonight. Thanks so much, man. Keep up. 